Well, Warner, so good to have you back. I am, uh, you, you remain one of my very favorite people in the whole world. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful for your willingness to come back for this. Uh, well, I'd like to thank you at the outset because we've become BFFs all of a sudden the last few years. Yes. I wish I'd known you years ago, but you've been doing such amazing work yourself and documenting and sharing stories and meeting fantastic individuals to help change the world. So, Well, your contributions that. far exceed mine. Uh, I'm well, grateful to play a small part in the, in the global effort to solve big problems, but uh, you are really the hero and I, I'm excited to have this discussion with you. In our last discussion, I asked you about your superpower and you said that disruption was your superpower, which it's the, it's the perfect example of why you are such an interesting person and one of my favorite people, because you, you spent your career at, at BYU in a business school. One of the, uh, it's a place that widely perceived as being very conservative in every meaning of that word. <laughs> and so the idea of having someone advocate disruption as a, a superpower from BYU, I mean, it's just like that should have everyone's full attention. So I, I want you to just talk about as, as you look back on your career of tremendous influence, tremendous impact. Uh, as you look at the role disruption has played, what are you grateful for having done with disruption to make the world a better place? Well, thanks for the question. I'm still trying to figure it out, of course. But I started my career with an explicit goal to shake up the status quo and to do things, not just do little tweaks on things, not just do things a little differently, but for me, part of disruption is actually doing different things. So confronting students and faculty colleagues and administrators at the university. And then as I started setting up NGOs to fight poverty, when I had these disruptive dreams about giving tiny loans to the poorest people in the third world so that they could dig themselves out of poverty. Uh, that process started incrementally, but people told me it couldn't be done. My friend said, the poor will never pay you back. Many elites, many rich people, Many business types said, you can only give loans to people that are already rich, that have good jobs. And I said, I'm going to give loans to people who don't have a job so they can create jobs. Well, all of that was very disruptive. And I had friends with PhDs, PhDs from Harvard who said microfinance won't work. The poor aren't smart enough to grow a business and we've created over 20 million and it's taken time. My friend uh, and Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Muhammad Yunus, became my partner and collaborator. 
He was doing similar work in Bangladesh. When I started in the Philippines, we didn't know about each other. But the more we talked after we became acquainted, and I invited him here to Utah, and he invited me there to Bangladesh, to the Grameen Bank, I was blown away by the possibilities. And I realized the guy was turning economics on its head. And because I was a fairly radical MBA professor critiquing big companies from the beginning and greed and CEO power and trying to humanize the enterprise and trying to create more meaningful work for employees and workers, I just found that this kind of movement was taking off because people were looking for something dramatically different. And after hundreds of years of top-down attempts to change the world, I realized that old Warner could do bottom-up change. Let's change the world from below. Let's start with the peasants, not with Wall Street, not with the UN, but with the villagers. And let's focus on helping impoverished women. That's been the most disruptive thing I've done because everybody said the women don't have any education. They've got no future. I said, no, they're the ones who work hard. They just don't get compensated for it. Yeah. And they want to send their kids to school and they need health care for their babies. And they're not getting it because if we give loans historically to the men, they take it and they use it on other stuff, on the, their drugs or their alcohol or their girlfriends in the next village. And they don't pay the loans back. And I learned that early on. And so we started saying, let's do 99% of our loans to impoverished women because we know they'll pay it back. They'll be responsible. They'll work harder than the men and they'll use their income, their profits to better the lives of their kids. So that was a pretty radical start. Boy, and, and that, is, that is disruptive. As you think about that, that aspect of it, and, and you look at the outcomes that have, have come out of it, I wonder if you could just elaborate on how a disruption worked as part of the solution. Uh, how do you think about that disruption helping to address poverty? Well, it, the whole notion was we've got to do something innovative and a little crazy. So we would go in with my students to start and then my donors to a town. And we'd ask people, where are the poorest people? And they'd say, well, they're down along the river. They're in tents or they're in squatter camps because they've been driven out of Uganda or Somalia or Guatemala cities, Guatemalan cities. And, and I'd say, we want to find them. We want to build relationships. We want to help them overturn their lifestyles and their economies. And they would say, well, that's crazy here. We got all these college educated people in downtown uh, San Salvador and El Salvador, or in Nairobi, Kenya, saying, no, they've got futures. We want to find 
those that have been overlooked, those that have been ignored, and and we want to be challenging to them. We want to be rowdy, and if they say, when we go down to the river, or go to the squatter camps, or these huge slums where we have tens of millions of families trying to eke out an existence today, we go to them and say, we want to help you overthrow your life, not overthrow your government, not overthrow your local businesses, but create your own future. We're going to give you $60 or $80 or $100 back in the 80s and 90s when we started doing this and help you gain control of your own future. And they would just say, oh, I, I can't do that. I, 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 know, I remember this instance of this woman in Honduras after Hurricane Mitch destroyed that country and set it back 50 years in 1998-99. And we went to this group of women and started meeting. There was 15 or 20 of them, then a group to about 30, sitting under a mango tree. It was a better teaching experience than in the Marriott School <laughs> with all the fancy technology. And we did some training and several over several Saturdays and then we came with money to give these people hundred dollar loans and you know we brought coca-cola and balloons to celebrate and they were so shocked and they said you mean we're gonna have a festa and we said yeah we're gonna have a fiesta I mean Portuguese festa <laughs> Spanish fiesta and we're gonna celebrate we're gonna sing a song and then we're going to give out the first loans. And the students with me said, Warner, who should we give the first loan to? I said, let's ask these women. They, they had named themselves the Bank of Women. Banco de las Mujeres. <laughs> and they'd elected leaders. And one of them was elected the president. And they all said, let's give it to the Presidente first, whose name, of course, was Maria. <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, okay, Maria, here I have $100 in Quetzales. Uh, and we'd like to give you the first loan to start your little business. She wanted to start a chicken coop business. And, and she said, oh, I can't do it. And, and she said, I can't accept it. And she's sitting back with all these women. I said, come on, Maria. And then I asked a couple of my students and her, her colleagues, her women, from the village to help her stand up and bring her up. And she started crying. And she cried all the way, walking up under this big tree to get the first bone. And I pull out this money and hand it to her. And she says, oh, I just, senor, professor, I just can't take it. I said, why not? And she said, I am just unworthy. I am a poor Indian woman. Woman, I've never had money. I've never seen this much money. I cannot accept it. I can't really succeed at this. And you know, then I got tears in my eyes. And I just said, you can do this. We love you. We trust you. We know this will work. 
And a year later, she had 5,000 chickens. She wow. tripled her business, starting with 12 chickens, then 50, then 100. It just went crazy. And, you know, I learned the power of taking on issues and turning people's views of the world and of themselves. Just turn them upside down. That's what disruption is. Shake it up, get rowdy, confront the issues, not the people, but confront the issues and try to help design or help them build their own new mindset of what they might do in life. Does that make sense? It, it, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just so inspiring. And it's interesting. You use a, a Honduran example. I was there a couple of years ago, so 20 years after you were there. And uh, the people still talk about Hurricane Mitch. Uh, it, it clearly was devastating to that country. And uh, we could spend all day talking about the, the things that have contributed to a slow recovery. Uh, but, but we'll move on. Let, let's talk a little bit. Uh, about um, how you have been teaching people to become disruptors. And, and, and we've got 10 or 15 minutes here for this discussion. Uh, you've been teaching this for 40 years. Uh, you teach this in, in semesters, but how would you counsel someone to be a disruptor? Well, I've, I've tried to suggest to my students from the get-go that, that they have multiple options. They can stay on the freeway, driving in the one great direction of a successful American life. I, I've taught in lots of other countries, but let's just talk about the kids I've taught in the Marriott School of Business for these decades ongoing. And I said, you can do that. And if you want to have the good life of comfort, of cash, of capital, of a nice home, a happy marriage, 3.2 children, you know, all that sort of stuff, just go ahead and jump through the hoops of getting good grades, having a safe internship with a big company, kissing up to people and, and, and doing your homework and learning and recipro uh, recycling that learning, reciprocating that learning with others and, and conforming to the system. But if you want to have a life of deeper authenticity, you have to create your own and it has to be unique and it has to kind of, kind of be your thing. And so I would, I would try to shake my classes up. We would propose outrageous ideas like going to Honduras after Hurricane Mitch or going off to the Philippines to a country that used to be the number two economy in Asia and, and, and by the late 80s was number two from the bottom after Taiwan and Korea and China and Japan all took over. And, and explore being kind of radicals, thinking radically. Sometimes I use the term positive deviance, which is another way of thinking about these ideas. And, you know, usually we think of deviants as problematic people. We put them in jail, right? 
I say, no, there's a positive kind of deviant. And that is someone who deviates from the mainstream culture and the norm. And I'm hoping my students in my social entrepreneurship class or my organizational development consulting class or my microfinance class or my third world uh, third world development course can can consider ways of reaching out and inventing new solutions and new models and new methods. Yes, the, the U.S. has got some great services. USAID does amazing work. Uh, the Ford Foundation and the Gates Foundation and others uh, channel huge sums of money. But I want to see what else can be done at the grassroots level by humble people like a professor or students uh, who are willing to take the risk and sacrifice instead of going for the internship on Wall Street where they get paid to raise some money from their friends and neighbors and relatives and go to the middle of Mali, the third poorest country on the planet in West Africa and spend a summer there helping in an arid region of uh, West Africa empower the women there to have a, a better future. So that's kind of been my approach. And, and the, the, I've, I've always said, you know, let's, we can't do everything, but we can do something. Let's create a climate of experimentation. And instead of going and working with the Red Cross, which is big and wonderful, or the United Nations, fantastic, or the German, big foundations of Germany or France or whatever. Let's just try to be innovative with the poorest of the poor who are not getting treated. They're not getting funding. They're not getting health care. Let's try to do some stuff ourselves. Does that make sense? It, it does. And it, it's an interesting take because there's a conventional wisdom in the nonprofit world that uh, starting a new nonprofit to do something similar to what's already being done is counterproductive because you're taking money from that nonprofit, et cetera, et cetera, and you're creating redundant overhead and infrastructure. And what I hear you saying is that uh, nonprofit work is just like any other form of entrepreneurship or business and new uh, ideas require new startups. They, they need to come fresh to create uh, that kind of innovation, uh, that disruption that we've been talking about. Am, am I understanding your message right? Do you agree with what I've said or did I misunderstand your message? No, you got it perfectly, Devin. And, and that's the kind of response I've always heard from the guys I call the big boys, the big NGOs, the big nonprofits, the big foundations. And it's the same with corporate America. Why, when we have Ford and IBM and Facebook, why do we need all these little guys? Well, we need them because we need the world to flourish. We need more jobs. We need more solutions. We need to become better aware of problems and invent new solutions to address them that the big bureaucracies 
aren't even aware of. And they're certainly not going to plow money into it. And if you're a good little NGO or a good little business startup, you know, they're going to they're going to buy you. They're going to take over. They, they want you. They don't want the competition and they want good ideas, too. But it's the same thing with, you know, when when the 9-11 hit and bless their hearts, the Red Cross did lots of good. They got like six billion dollars in donations and they channeled three billion of it away from helping. They got so much money that instead of just helping with the New York crisis of uh, terror attacks on the Twin Trade Towers and stuff, they decided in their wisdom as a board to go ahead and take a bunch of that money and put it into other projects. Well, the people who donated hadn't been informed of that, didn't agree to that, didn't sign off on it. And it's the same with all these little NGOs. And now we know a lot of little startups fail in business. A lot of little startups fail with social entrepreneurship or NGOs or poor people's health care, whatever. But that's okay because life is full of risks and failures and we can keep growing, you know. And and my goal with, with this process, uh, and I, I hate to quote Chairman Mao here, but, you know, he said, let a thousand flowers bloom. And I'm, that's kind of where my head is. Yeah. We don't know what's going to work. But if we only did what worked, we still wouldn't use polio to say nothing about COVID-19 vaccinations, man. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I I think George Bush Sr. meant much the same thing as Mao when he talked about a thousand points of light. Exactly. Uh, he, He was talking about this idea that everyone can contribute everyone should contribute and and we should try lots of different things to solve the world's big problems as you think about your students let's go back um, to be as academic as we can you know where where does a a student start as as someone is a student social entrepreneur aspiring change maker how do you start thinking about what to disrupt and how to disrupt it? Well, what I found, Devin, over time is that many of these kids have lived abroad. They've lived in Mexico. They've lived in, you know, East Africa or someplace. They, 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 they spent two years uh, as a missionary or a volunteer or something working with a big nonprofit. And when they get into this kind of educational experience I try to offer, they come to me and they say, man, I'm reading this stuff. I'm hearing, watching these videos, hearing these stories. I want to go help the people in Madagascar. And you know, the first couple of times I heard that from somebody about Madagascar, I said, wait a sec, where is that? Oh, I've been to, I've been to uh, uh, Mozambique, which is right across the water. And, you know, they said, we want to start. So, so just so you know, there's now five little NGOs in Madagascar started by my students over the last 15 years. And they're going like gangbusters. And one of them's healthcare, and one of them's a little transportation company with pedicabs, pedic taxis, like they use in the Philippines and other parts of Asia. 
and, and then there's the microcredit stuff and clean water NGOs. And, and what I found is these kids, if they want to do it, I put them together with others having the same interest and ask them to invent a new social structure, a new organizational strategy. And of course, they all want to do it big and think they're going to raise millions. And I say, no, start small. Work with three or four people and, and get your design right and the strategy clear and the structure established and the marketing materials ready and stuff. And then let's present it to some friends. Maybe they're a group in one of my classes. Maybe they're folks I know in Salt Lake or whatever. And I'll have them present and share and get feedback. Not expecting people are going to steal their ideas, which is often what happens in corporate corporate America, but just sound use them as a sounding board and stuff, and fertilizing, cross-fertilizing ideas, they come up with something much better than we PhD people could probably invent, and they then start moving ahead, and I'll often help them get, get a couple board members or a couple donors, because I got this big list of potential folks wanting to do good, wanting to help, but they're, you know, they're in California or New York or Florida, and they're not going to go to Madagascar, but they'll help these kids get something going, and then they'll be on their board, and they'll give them feedback, and and I'll always tell the board members, now, your job is not to just be a bump on a log to approve. Your job is to critique in a loving way, but to keep asking questions because if you can't do that, you're not going to have the kind of uh, success they really need. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this is just critical, critical thinking. As as your proteges, as your students move past this initial stage where they're developing. Uh, really a, a conceptual prototype. Um, how do they begin to scale the disruption? What are the things that trigger, allow, or, or encourage that? Or what do they have to overcome to, to begin to scale their disruptive uh, innovation? Well, I, I push for a couple things in terms of scaling. One is that they don't go too fast, but that everything they do, they document. So they've got ongoing reporting systems and tracking systems that can verify what's happening in the organization, in their basement here in Washington, D.C., or in Idaho. And But they'll have all that material to be, be able to use to convince future donors with evidence. And if they don't want to do it, I'll give them other students who can come in as independents and monitor and assess and write up reports. So they have ongoing data because if they're not learning from their mistakes and their successes, they're going to be stuck. So that's, that's one big feature. Another one is I tell them you cannot, you cannot succeed in helping people in Panama or my country, Brazil, or Lima, Peru, or the villages of Nicaragua without having folks there 
running your program. So you need to hire some staff as you get a little capital and train them and, and have ongoing communication with them so that what your board decides and you as the manager or founder feel you want to accomplish, that gets communicated and then you help those folks in that third world society implement it and they too document it. And, and it becomes, then it becomes their baby. It's not, a, it's not an American NGO in Madagascar. It's a Madagascar NGO. It's a Malian NGO in Walesabugu region where we've been working with, you know, 32, country, 32 communities now for, for 30 years. And our roots are very deep. We've had long-term impacts from the cradle to the grave with tens of thousands of people that before, on average, they died at age 36 and 30% of their babies died at childbirth within the first year. Their uh, death rates were horrible. And yeah. so, you know, we could have rushed in and dropped off some food and some computers or whatever and said, good luck. But it's gradual, incremental, learning as we go. Uh, as my friends, my Basque friends in, in the northern part of Spain, uh, where they've set up all these worker-owned cooperatives, 100% owned, some 200 companies now. Wow. Organizational democracy. The most successful businesses in Europe, in the poorest region of Spain, one of their themes all these years has been, Warner, we build the road as we travel. And I think that's been a kind of metaphor for my teaching and my mentoring and shaking up and uh, stirring up trouble with my students or other donors, you know. Well, this is uh, fascinating. I, I'm excited. Uh to follow up with you to learn more about uh, worker co-ops in, in Spain. Uh, that's just the kind of thing that, uh, that gets me excited. But as we wrap up, any final messages for people who want to learn your model of disruption for how they can be effective disruptors? Well, I think they have to take a good hard look in the mirror, I believe, and say, wherever, whatever stage of life they're in, they just graduated from college, they just finished five years at their new company, or they've been a CEO for 15 years, or she's been a nurse, or he's been a nurse in a hospital for a couple decades now, and they're in their 40s and 50s and they're looking in the mirror and saying okay I can retire from my business now or I can retire in three years I need to get ready I need to get focused I need to get prepared and I, I suggest to people whether they're younger or older to ask themselves is there more to life than what you've had uh, my, uh, my, my friend, occasional friend and great mentor, 
Peter Drucker, who's kind of the father of modern management, right? They had me come down and be a, the first visiting professor at the Drucker School of Management at Claremont, California. And uh, they said, we want you to help teach our MBA students how to be change agents, how to be disruptors. And I said, well, you've got the books of Peter Drucker. He, he laid it all out. And they said, yeah, what, what, what would you emphasize? And I, I cited one article by Drucker in the Harvard Business Review. And I think it was about 1995. Maybe it was a decade later, I don't know. In which he wrote this article titled, Managing One's Self. Managing oneself. And he talks about friends he has that he has consulted with when they were vice presidents of companies on the West Coast or in Chicago or wherever. And he said, a lot of them were coming to me, and I've had a lot of this my, my, myself the last 20 years. And they say, Professor Drucker or Warner, uh, I just realized I am 51. I can retire in four years, but unlike my parents and my grandparents, I'm going to live till I'm 90. I have good health. I have great health care systems. If I have problems, they're going to take care of me. I have more money than I ever dreamed. I have retirement. I have a pension. I have investments. And my kids are grown and have left the house. I'm sitting around with my spouse, whether this person is a she and she's talking about with her boring husband or it's the husband who's been an executive and he's looking at his wife saying, what are we going to do besides look at each other and play tennis or golf for the next 30 or 40 years? And Drucker said, and I say, figure out what else you can do. You don't need to stay in this big mansion. You don't need to live in a luxurious condo. You don't need to check your income every day and, and, and look at increased revenues. You could think about finding new purpose, a kind of a purpose-driven life. You could consider doing something radically different and have a whole new life, kind of like a rebirth for the next 20, 30 years and, and still have all the good things you have in your life but maybe you could learn to give a bunch of it away and take some risk and try some things out. And go crazy working with young, young students starting an NGO in Madagascar or in Vanuatu in the Pacific or, you know, with Eskimos and indigenous people in Alaska or New Zealand and, and explore ways you can have a whole second life whole second uh, uh, purpose to your future. Not a second income. You've got plenty of that. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That is such a great way to close our conversation today. Uh, Warner, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your challenge to people to become disruptors whether that's in their 20s or in their 60s or 70s, uh, everyone can be a disruptor. And uh, it's a great, great message. Thank you so, so much. Uh, 
We're grateful for your time today. We're grateful for all that you've done. Uh, we wish you every success in continuing your great work uh, to disrupt the world and make it a better place. Thanks so much, Devin. And one of these days, you and I are going together to Mexico or someplace. Yes. To do some work together. I'd love to do that. Let's do it. Thanks for recording all these interviews and, and podcasts because I know they're impacting lots of people. So keep it up. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, Warner. You have a great day now. Take care, okay? Thanks so much. All right. Let's Bye -bye. do some good. Okay. Let's do some good.